Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Sunday, October the 30th, 2022. And more significantly than that, it is the day before Halloween in both North America and interestingly in Dubai, where my guest today, the renowned F-barologist Virginia Latura Jeeker, is getting ready to celebrate Halloween tomorrow, I believe. Is that correct, Virginia? Oh, yes. You could see, John. You could see me, but the participants cannot. I have on a little scarf with skulls. Perfect, perfect. And uh, so how, how does Halloween play out in Dubai anyway? Okay, so the community I live in is a lot of the community are expatriates, so they will have some idea about Halloween. But over the years, anything that's become commercialized has become a big deal in Dubai. And a lot of more traditional and local type families also get into the spirit of it. All the houses are decorated in my community. We are also at the same time having Diwali, which is the special Indian festival. So we have a lot of houses with lights and right next door to them is the house with the gigantic jack-o'-lanterns and the ghosts and the cobwebs. So it's a very interesting, eclectic mix in my community. We're having a lot of fun with it. And the oh kids will come by tomorrow all prepared in their costumes. It is the holiday season. Well, hmm. you know, leaving aside all of these festivities, around the world uh this is a particularly interesting week in the uh, supreme court of the united states and again uh i see this to some extent as a continuation of our discussion of mr f bar and oh my god he's making an appearance this week in the supreme court right oh he is can you imagine this is a very exciting time and who will he be meeting john well, you know, he's he's meeting the Solicitor General of the United States, who, you know, uh, great academic background and and interesting personal stories and and that. So, I mean, this is I mean, it's almost it's almost worth going to the Supreme Court, I think, to meet the current court and the Solicitor General. Absolutely. In any case, Miss Idaho. What's that? She was the former Miss Idaho, was she not? The, the former Miss Idaho. Oh my God, that's I mean that just shows you how far uh, a Miss uh, uh, Beauty contest winner can go. <laughs> Remarkable stuff. Uh, you know, I'd read that. Yeah, I'd read that. Uh, interesting, but uh, you know, very accomplished academic. I believe she's a graduate of Harvard Law School, and I think has a master's degree in uh, literature or something. So, you know best of all possible worlds. But in any case, uh, what is interesting about the Solicitor General uh, is the uh, the vengeance, if you will, uh, the righteousness, uh, you know, with this claim that these, uh, that, that Mr. Fbar should be uh, used to severely punish people, severely, and it's almost, it's almost vengeful. But we'll get to that in a second. Um, Let's talk, let's, I think for people to understand this, I think, although we've talked about this before, I think we need to, you know, outline the statute and what exactly is going on here in a general sense. So may I invite you to begin taking us down that road, Virginia? Sure. I think the very interesting thing about FBAR, people have to remember it, 
it's not part of the Internal Revenue Code. It is part of the Bank Secrecy Act. And if you look at the main sections of the law of the Bank Secrecy Act, they are sections of the 31, Title 31 U.S. Code, Section 5314 and Section 5321. Those are your really, those are your guiding statutory sections. And when you look at them, there is nothing in there in either section that spells out in any clear manner that a penalty should be imposed on someone for not filing an FBAR. Um, I don't know, John, if it's worthwhile to try and actually parse through the statute, but it's, it's really um, not clear at all. And when a statute is that unclear, I would have hoped and thought that the US government would tread a little bit more carefully and respectfully before imposing penalties. But I see that that's really not been happening. No, it, it has not been happening at all. And, and, and we've discussed this before. And I think in a, in a general sense, uh, we would agree that all Section 5314 really does is just kind of, you know, punts or directs over to the Treasury Secretary, please make up some rules to require people to give this information to the U.S. government, right? That's correct. That is correct. And if you look at what the statute tells them to do, um, you see language like, for example, the secretary shall prescribe the identity and address of participants in a transaction, the legal capacity in which they're acting, blah, 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 a reasonable classification of persons subject to the requirements. And you go through the list and you're trying to find, well, where is the authorization for the penalty? The only place I could see it was in um, section 5314B5, which says the secretary may prescribe other matters the secretary considers necessary to carry out this section or a regulation under this section. So conceivably, um, the secretary could consider it necessary to impose a penalty if you don't mm -hmm. follow through. Okay, well, but of course. My guess is that's where they're authority is coming from, if you want to call it authority. Well, so, certainly also also 5321, which, you know, the, the civil penalty section, but it's definitely all over the place. This is the thing. Yes. You know, at a bare minimum, if one were to actually look at the Bank Secrecy Act, Section 5314, it is almost inconceivable to me that anybody would imagine that it's imposing a requirement to report foreign bank accounts. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and but all it really does is just directs the, tr the Treasury Secretary to make up these rules. And of course, the rules have uh, evolved and continue to evolve over the years. You know, what, what we call, I think we've referred to before, as sort of F-bar creep. Mm -hmm. But assuming here for a minute, uh, the what really is the American principle of penalty, right? That as we go through life, we have a presumption of penalty. Uh, you know, what is the dividing line in terms of the kinds of penalties, right? We have. I think your dividing line would be whether it's willful or non-willful. Yeah. And 
And we've even got two sections, right? So 5321 deals with civil, well, actually, no, we have willful in, in both a criminal sense in 5322 and in a civil sense in 5321. But clearly the dividing line on this is the whole issue of willfulness. And um, what would be the consequences of, of going down the non-willful road versus the willful road in, in a general sense? I say your non-willful violation could subject you to a penalty of $10,000. Whereas the willful civil penalty can subject you to whichever is higher, $100,000 or 50% of the value of the account at the time of the violation. And that's on the civil side. Um, also, am I right in saying that reasonable cause is a defense only only to non-willful penalties? Yes, I would think that's correct. Yeah, I think I think that is correct. So the consequences... Which makes that clear. I'm sorry? The statute makes that clear. If you look at Section 5321, which talks about the penalties. Now, where I get can't get my head around is anyone who violates Section 5314 can have the penalties imposed, but it's not clear to me that people can violate 5314. It seems like the secretary is the one who's being subjected to having to do things under 5314. But be that as it may, it's assumed by the courts and so forth that the penalty is permissible. So let's go with that. And if we look at reasonable cause, it is an and a, a way to get out of the penalty if the penalty was non-willful. That's made pretty clear in Section 5321. So there's a little carve out. So let's imagine that you're, you know, you got a client in front of you dealing with a, one of these horrendous issues, the F-bar Inquisition. And as a lawyer, your job, I think, is to work hard to make this non-willful, right, as opposed to willful. Because really, uh, uh, you know, if it's non-willful, then you've got reasonable cause arguments, etc. You've got a penalty cap to ten thousand dollars, etc., etc. Would you would you agree with that? Well, it sounds like that would be nice, but it I think. So much of it depends on is that $10,000 cap, is that imposed on a per account basis or a per form, FBAR form basis? If it's per account and the person has 100 accounts that were unreported for a single tax year, that could be 100 accounts times $10,000. That might end up being a bit of a higher penalty than otherwise. That's right. It, it is entirely possible on that interpretation on the uh, impose the penalty per account to actually end up paying higher penalties than if it were willful. That's right. That's interesting. So I, I think you need to do the numbers before you decide which which way you want to argue. Well, you may be right on that. Well, so, subject to what happens with this case this week. But why don't we explore the whole issue of uh what is willfulness and what is non-willfulness in the context of, of FBAR? I mean, I think it's in, incredibly unclear. What do you think? 
It is very unclear, John, and uh, professionals struggle with it all the time. Um, we see different cases focusing on different items and uh, in the facts that they consider important. And we never know what the IRS may argue. And you and I have examined various cases. So if we look at the Bittner case, which is being decided at the Supreme Court at some point this year or next year, oral arguments start next week. Um, we see that Mr. Bittner was a very sophisticated businessman. He was a um, an owner of various companies. He had a lot of business savvy. And the IRS came down saying that he was non-willful. Um, what they were trying to argue was the amount of the penalty. Was the penalty per form that he didn't file for the FBAR? Or was it per account that was not reported on the FBAR? So, so the assumption going in with that case is that no one is arguing any any longer was he willful or non-willful. It's taken for granted that he was non-willful as far as the case goes. If you look at his facts and you compare them to another case where the IRS has argued that the client, the taxpayer was willful, the case of Marika Kothalos that we have discussed before, this was a housewife from Buffalo, New York, who moved to Greece at some point in the 1990s, her husband was a Greek national, her father was a Greek national. She was assisting her father with a lot of his financial things because he was not uh, very good with the English language. He was a successful um, contractor in New York. He had a some kind of repair contracting business. So while he was successful financially, he was not, he was not um, very proficient in the English language. So she was assisting him with various things. And she got into a whole mess because she had some accounts in Greece that they eventually sent over to a bank in Switzerland because in Greece, the employees of the bank were, were talking about the family and there was not enough privacy. They became concerned with um, possible kidnapping attempts and so forth. They were worried about the privacy aspect of keeping their money in Greece um, where they were fairly well known. So the IRS in that case is arguing that Marika was, was willful and the IRS asked for a summary judgment, meaning there is no dispute of the facts. <laughs> the, the court should grant us this summary judgment on this issue. And the court refused to do it. They said, no, we've looked at all the facts and examined everything. And we believe that the facts can go either way. She was willful or she was non-willful. So we're going to leave that up to the jury. That hasn't been decided yet. But just looking at the facts as we know them between Bittner and Kothalos, I can't believe the dichotomy we've got. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and it's scary because it shows you that there is no real consistency. There's no... How do we advise people? How do we how do we come down on saying, gee, you know, I think you I think you have a good chance that you're non-willful. Go into streamline. And the IRS disagrees and you've got the Department of Justice soon on your case. <laughs> you know, you don't know. So it's a very, very tough call. I I don't like practicing in this area. It's difficult. 
Well, it, it is very difficult because, you know, if you compare those two people, I mean, I'm not saying that either of them is or is not willful, but I would say that I think it's a lot easier to make the argument that Mr. Bittner was willful because of the, you know, the general sophistication, the business experience, et cetera. On the other hand, uh, the case of Ms. Cathalos, I think that the bank was UPS, wasn't it? Yes, yes. You know, which unfortunate. It's very, very unfortunate because a lot of these, a lot of these people who've been hit with these willful penalties have been, you know, were clients at UBS. So I think they're perhaps unfairly, unfairly tarnished. But I mean, in it, you know, if somebody were to say, you know, Virginia, could you give me three or four factors that are relevant in determining willfulness? Mm-hmm. Uh, what might some of those be? Okay, I think the biggest factor that the courts seem to be looking at are. What did this taxpayer do to try and understand his or her obligations with regard to these foreign accounts? So one of the important points might be whether the taxpayer revealed the fact that he had this account to his tax return preparer. Um, These days, tax return preparers are being far more careful and asking clients about their non-U.S. accounts and, you know, giving them organizers where they have to say yes or no, I have them or I don't have them. And when people do not reveal the fact that they have a non-U.S. financial account to their return preparer or their advisor, that is a very bad black mark against them. Another factor that's looked at is the question on what was uh, the question on the 1040, Schedule B, B, asking whether you have any foreign financial accounts. And if you check no, when you do have them, that really looks bad. If you check yes, and you don't go further because it tells you, then you may have an obligation to file this thing called an FBAR. If you don't look further, well, that looks bad. It looks like you just recklessly disregarded or you were willfully blind to the fact that you should have investigated a bit more and said, gee, well, what is this? I better learn about it. Instead, you just turned a blind eye. So those are important factors. What you've revealed, what um, you have checked on the Schedule B, and other factors, for example, the degree of sophistication you have, your your educational level, what area you work in, you know, if you're a U.S. tax attorney, eh, you know, well, why didn't you know about this? Whereas if you are someone who's, you know, in the fashion industry, you might not know about it. Um, there's, I think there's that aspect as well. And the other thing that, that I find significant is when you are dealing with the individual, find out how much have they investigated in, if they're doing business, for example, in other countries, how much have they investigated about their tax issues in that other country? And that might clue you into, well, why didn't they go a little further digging into their possible US issues with regard to owning foreign assets? So I think there's a number of things you can look at to help you make that. So sort of a a collage of factors where, you know, the whole is going to be greater than the sum of the parts or. Oh, completely. Yes. Or perhaps less. But one of the, uh, you know, I think that's that's a very interesting uh, description and I thank you for that. But 
as I listen to you talk about this, I think what it underscores is that actual knowledge, the government does not have to prove actual knowledge of the FBAR requirement for civil willfulness. Absolutely. That is correct. In other words, willful blindness would suffice. Oh, I'm not going to check this out or recklessness. Uh, well, you know, there might be a chance of this, but I'm not going to go to the trouble to find out. Mm -hmm. You know, all, all of this sort of stuff. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting in the earlier years, by earlier years, I mean, after 2012, I guess, where these things started to appear in the courts, there, there were a few cases that I think went so far as to say that checking no on the Schedule B was actually, you know, and that, that, that I think is very difficult to swallow, particularly in a world where a lot of these tax forms are pre-populated, you know, et cetera. And also, you know, a lot of people, I think with justification, uh, you know, don't understand an account in their country to be a foreign account, you know, yes. you know sort of down the street from them. So, you know, this is uh this is a very, very it's a very tough problem. A very tough problem. And I, you know, without taking a position on Mr. Bidner's willfulness, I do agree that in a comparative sense, when we look at the IRS position wanting to impose willfulness on Miss Cothalos, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this this is a gigantic problem. I mean, it just reeks of arbitrariness and sort of vengeance and things like that. And, you know, the reason that we have laws is to get out of the business of arbitrariness and vengeance, right? Uh, of course. Of course. You know, but this is something that, you know, they just, the U.S. government appears to have just uh, adopted as, it, as its vehicle for vengeance, as I think is demonstrated, by the issue in the Bittner case. So maybe help us with that. Can you set the stage a little more for, you know, why uh, Mr. F. Barr is making his visit to the Supreme Court this week? What happened here? Well, um, why he is visiting the Supreme Court, I think we have had so much confusion in this area. And it's now got to be finally decided because we, we have the Fifth Circuit in the Bittner case, the Fifth Circuit said that the penalty should be imposed on a per account basis. And we've had other cases where they have said it should be imposed on a per form basis. That's for example, in the Ninth Circuit. So we... Um, could, could you help really, us a little bit with what that means monetarily in the Bittner case? So people can get a sense of the gravity of the difference. Okay. Um, I'm trying to remember the numbers for Bittner. 272 accounts. Okay. So <laughs> 272 accounts times. Five years. Five years. $10,000 per 272 is what, John? 272000 per year? $0.72 There you go. Times six years, no? What I, six years? Okay, six years. I thought it was five, but who's counting? Five or six? When we get to that number, I don't think it makes a difference. Um, whereas ten thousand dollars per year, as opposed to fifty accounts per year, right? In other words, it's the difference per year, roughly, between a $10,000 penalty and a $500,000 penalty, I think, isn't it? 
That sounds right. You Something know, like that. I, I don't know. Anyway, the but key it's a point. Huge, a huge amount. It's enormous. It's yes, enormous. It and um, where else do we have to look? Um, I'm trying to just pick up one of my earlier blogs. Um, okay, so why are we visiting the Supreme Court? So we've got the USB Bittner issue. So just from what I see here, I'm looking at one of my blog posts. The taxpayer in Bittner was hit with a hefty penalty involving 177 FBAR violations, therefore at $1.77 million because he had a financial interest in more than 25 accounts per year for three years. They were only getting him for three years for some reason. So that was Bittner. Now, we have had the U.S. versus Boyd case. The taxpayer there had 14 financial accounts in, in the U.K., and there was only one tax year at issue. So that year was 2010. Uh, the IRS said her violations were not willful, and they ended up mitigating the penalties a little bit. So for that one tax year, 2010, on each of the 13 accounts, they hit her with a total FBAR penalty of over $47,000. And she argued, no, wait a minute. It's only one tax year. I can only be assessed the $10,000 for failing to file the FBAR. Okay. And the Ninth Circuit agreed with her. So the law in the Ninth Circuit now is you assess the penalties on a per form by the way, we did have an earlier case. You may be familiar with the U.S. versus V. Kaufman, Mr. Kaufman. That was three years, involved three years. Um, he had only signature authority over various accounts. And the IRS was asserting non-willful penalties on a per-account basis per year. They had used some discretion to lower the possible penalties. But for one year, for example, 2008, the penalty that could have been assessed at $10,000 times 13 accounts was 130,000. The IRS mitigated it down to 42,000 and change for that year. But Mr. Kaufman argued, no, no, it should only be $10,000 for each year that the FBAR wasn't filed. So it should be resulting in a $30,000 penalty using the per form argument. And that was a district court decision which agreed with Mr. Kaufman, okay? So I don't know if anything further has happened with that case. I don't think anything has been decided further. Um, so let's see what's going to happen there. Well, anyway, it's uh, it's definitely a, a, it's, it's a live issue. And it's, it's, it's uh, a hot issue. It's a hot issue. Absolutely. So yeah. I think it's it's time for the Supreme Court to step in and resolve this. Well, so basically the issue to frame it again is, uh, you know, recognizing that the statute itself, 5314, is incredibly unclear. So the issue and people are required under the Treasury regulation to file a form every year with all of your accounts on it. So the question and 5321 uh, talks about penalties that can be imposed for a violation. So the question is, is it a violation 
based on the failure to file the form, a single obligation consisting of multiple parts, in which case it would be a max 10,000, or whether the penalty can be based on a failure uh, to file all the component parts of what might be included on the form. Would that be the way of looking at it? I think that's a really good description, John. Okay. Well, Virginia, now, you are, as far as I'm concerned, the great F-barologist of our age, and I mean that, and the greatest compliment. So with that, what do you think the court's going to do with this? Gosh, John, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I think, gee, you know, they, they should lean toward its per form because that's kind of the most reasonable thing. For, you just look, for example, at um, information reporting forms that we have in the tax world. So, for example, Form 5471, which needs to be filed by certain U.S. owners of foreign corporations. That form is quite detailed. The penalty for not filing is $10,000 or screwing it up is $10,000. If they started to look at each component, you know. Each schedule, for example. Yes, wouldn't it be a little bit crazy? You know, that's that's a that's a great argument, Virginia. That's a great argument. I mean, yeah, look at the 5471. And people imagine the 5471 as a form. It's not a form. It's like 10 different forms, you know, depending on the schedules. Mm -hmm. Of course, of course. It's entirely possible for somebody to, you know, so if you don't file a 5471, it means you didn't file 10 forms. So shouldn't you get 10,000 times the number of schedules? I think that's a very, a very interesting uh, a way of looking at it. Yeah. Maybe um, after the IRS listens to our podcast, we're going to see a 5471 penalty skyrocketing per schedule. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Per schedule. Or, or a thirty-five twenty. I mean, you know, I mean, this. You're right. I mean, this this could go on and on and on and on. It could, but you know, the IRS would come back and say, "Well, uh, listen, you guys are always arguing about Title Twenty Six and the Internal Revenue Code versus Title Thirty One of the uh, U.S. Code governing the bank secrecy and FBAR rules. They are completely separate, so we don't look at it the same way. Who knows? So, so in other words, we're, we're going to be reasonable with respect to 26, and we're thankful for Title 31 so we can be as vengeful as we want. Is that it? <laughs> Who knows? Could be. <laughs> well, I mean, the briefs are are interesting. Have, have you read any of the briefs particularly, or...? I have been reading the amicus, amicus curiae briefs, uh, which I find interesting. Um, listen, I, I think both sides are making fairly decent arguments. Um, and that's why I'm having trouble saying, well, it's clear. It's not clear. It's not a slam dunk. I don't know. And John, at the end of the day, we know, having practiced for many years, we know that a lot of the way cases are decided depends not so much on, let's say, the statute itself, the language itself. When things are ambiguous the way they are here, I think so much depends on what's happening in the grand scheme of the world. Like, what would be the most 
beneficial decision to come about. Do we care about people hiding money offshore? Yes, we do. Do we care about, you know, terrorists and so forth using financial accounts? Yes, we do. So it could be, it could be that making this penalty as egregious as possible can thwart some of that. I don't know. Um, I just, I don't think that the law is clear and going to give you an answer. I don't think there is out there in the universe a correct answer. I think so much of it depends on what is happening in the world? What is this important for? What is the social policy? What, what you know, agenda can we further here? And I think it's a lot of different factors, including, including the idea that, you know, the IRS and the Treasury needs money. Yeah. You know, the, the Supreme Court uh, has been far more newsworthy the last couple of years with the, you know, suggestions that's being politicized, you know, with these various appointments, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any particular thoughts on how the current composition of the court might factor into either the analysis or the decision? No, I, I really couldn't uh, opine on that, John. No. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I, I suspect... tax cases. You know, tax cases are not something that the Supreme Court, I don't think, feels very comfortable with. Um, well, this has nothing to do with tax. This is just a straight criminal law issue, I think. Uh, it's not even criminal. It's civil. Well, it's something. It, I mean, you know, it's not. It's not tax. It could be anything. I mean, it could I be understand. a requirement to report the number of bicycles in your house or something, you know, I mean, <laughs> right. You know, and, and also uh, what's interesting is what I find interesting about these cases is that how little emphasis, if any, there is on whether there's any financial loss to the U.S. Treasury. There is none. This is not tax. There's no, yeah, it doesn't impose a tax. Okay. That's why. I, I think we're going to be looking at, as I said, what's the reason we have this? It's to fight terrorism. It's to fight tax crimes. Anti-money laundering issues, all of these things. And seriously, if you look at the penalty of $10,000 per account, let's just say, do you think that's really going to stop terrorism or money laundering? I don't. You know, I think you're probably right. But what's particularly interesting about a lot of these cases is that they arise in the context of people trying to fix these problems. <laughs> That's right. You know, I mean, they, not... arise in, they arise in the cases that where the people are correct, trying to fix their, their problems. Yeah, and you know, and so, and so they get punished for it. I mean, I wonder how many of these FBAR violations are discovered independently. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, obviously, in the case of an audit, I suppose the stuff would come to light. But it is—it is amazing how many of these the decisions we're reading, we're reading anyway, the ones that become newsworthy, 
are people who tried to, you know, enter the one of the, you know, the streamlined or, you know, they tried to file F bars, you know, in some context or another. And, you know, mm -hmm. rather than thank you for fixing the problem, it's, oh my God, you owe, you owe the U.S. government money, you know, this sort of stuff, right? I mean, it's, it's really, um, I mean, it seems to me that it's part of an overall a process and fairness issue in administration of this stuff as well. But it will be interesting, and I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna venture a prediction. I will venture a prediction. My prediction is that the court is gonna rule that it is a per form and not a per account penalty. Let's hope. Well, I I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. But I mean, it's just I mean, I think that this stuff is insane, as you know. But I mean, to move this into the per account thing, it's just moving it into, especially. You know, given the incredible ambiguity of of every aspect of this, is that's what I find very disconcerting, John. And and you and I have touched on this before. When the law is so unclear, we tend to be more respectful and more circumspect with our decisions as to what we say it means. But and to to jump to say it's. $10,000 per penalty per account flies in the face of that, especially when I'm sorry, I'm just not seeing the authorization for it as, you know, being clear. No way. Apparently it's also not, not consistent with the, uh, the penalty manual. Uh, yes, the I, IRS, the IRS itself, if you read some of the amicus to our briefs, point out how the IRS is ping pong back and forth with its yeah. interpretation of this. So, you know, again, remember they're scrapped for cash. They've they've taken a really hard line more recent in more recent years. And we we've had the Bradley Birkenfeld, we've had the UBS scandal, we've had all of the, you know, non-prosecution agreements being signed by the Swiss banks. So it's just it's been a very, very um hot area where they, they could get away with it basically. Yeah. People were settling. You know, people would settle, even businesses would settle, even if they were, you know, very well to do, they would, they would settle these cases because the idea that, you know, they may be, oh my gosh, they could be harder with the $10,000 per account penalty, at least they're mitigating it. Let's just settle it and be done with it. So the IRS had a lot of clout. And, you know, unfortunately, that has, I think, allowed them to take a harder and harder line. So yeah, it sort of enabled them. You know, and coming to an end on this one, I think it's worth noting for listeners that um, we have this case, the Toth case, uh, where there's an attempt for the Supreme Court to deal with the issue whether these F-bar penalties uh, violate the excessive fine clause in the Constitution or whatever. I mean, they really are shocking. You know, they really are shocking. So that may be, uh, who knows, maybe a year from now, uh, Mr. Fbar is going to be paying a second, a, a return visit to the Supreme Court. What do you think? No, who knows? They may not want to see his face and not grant cert. Uh, well, maybe he'll just hang out there for the next year. You know, we never know exactly where he is. But, you know, Virginia, we're going to have a sighting of Mr. Fbar this, I guess, Wednesday, November the 2nd, in the Supreme Court of the United States. And the the world will be watching. Okay. I look forward to it, John. 
All right, this is great. Well, thanks very much. And for those who uh, either have or anticipate FBAR problems coming in, in into their lives, Virginia, how would they get a hold of you? Oh, um, they can get a hold of me by email, but I think what they might want to do is check out my blog and read up a little bit. I have tons of posts on FBAR. I always love when a client is educated and well-read. So why don't they start there and then you know, maybe they'll see they, they can solve their own problems or if they feel they can't, they can reach out to me via the blog. And that is at www.us-tax.org. So I wish people a lot of luck in navigating this maze. Well, that's great. Well, you know, Virginia and I have been discussing this really for some years now. I think our first video was called Looking for Mr. F-Bar. Yep. <laughs> I think four or five years ago, and by God, we're still looking. <laughs> yep. She's still popping up. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks, Virginia. This has been great, and I uh, look forward to connecting with you again on this soon. Thanks, John. Have a happy Halloween. Oh, you too.